Hello, this is David Sangster, lead pastor at New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today for our podcast. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired. Enjoy the message. I want you to do one thing for me this morning. I want you to take a good cleansing breath. Just take, breathe in and let it out. Can we, can we exist in that place today? This message, I want it to be a, a, a palate cleanser. This is Jesus' most amazing message to the world. And we get the opportunity to study through it for the next rest of the summer. So I'm excited about this. And today is kind of the preamble to that series. So before we start, let's pray over this entire series that God would show up in our hearts. We know he's here, that's not a problem, but that he would show up in our hearts because we're allowing him to, and also that we would be adventurous enough to allow God's word, God's message of the kingdom to change us. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we are going to spend the rest of the summer on the mount with you, listening to your words. God, I pray right now, Lord, that you would help this pastor to get out of your way. That you would speak clearly through your sermon and that we would just enjoy studying around it. And Lord, it is a privilege to be in your presence this morning. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the big idea of this series, the whole series is this. For the rest of the summer, we will be taking a journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Through this series, we will hear Jesus invite us to follow him. To follow him. Him. And that's the posture I want you guys to take towards this entire series is this. What Jesus says here, I want to follow that. It's not complicated. It's also not easy. It's not complicated, but it's not easy. All right? To follow him as he preaches about the coming of the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' whole message in his ministry was the coming of his kingdom. So it would be behoove us to understand a little bit more about that. So this week's sermon title is Right Side Up. Right Side Up. And the big idea for this mis-message today is, as members of God's kingdom, Jesus calls his followers to live in ways that are radically different from what people would expect. Right side up, not upside down. So in my mind, this Sermon on the Mount is the, is, is the greatest teaching in history. Now, if you think of it that way, you start thinking, wow, we are privileged to be able to look at this, to study this, to, to enjoy kind of exploring this. It's the greatest piece of teaching in all of history. It's Jesus' magnus opus, magnum opus. It's his magnum opus. It's, 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 it's the crescendo for his entire ministry. It is his kingdom manifesto. 
according to uh, Craig Lomberg, the sermon likely represents a summary of Jesus' sermons. Jesus probably taught in similar topics in many of his sermons. So Jesus traveled. He was a traveling itinerant preacher. He would go to town to town, and he would teach his, his yoke of teaching. Now, if you understand uh, rabbinical teachers, they had a body of teaching, a way of understanding Torah, and that was called the rabbi's yoke. And if you took that yoke upon yourself, it means you took that teacher's understanding of Torah and you applied it to yourself. What did Jesus say about his yoke? He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, so when Jesus is going from town to town sharing the message of the gospel, the kingdom of God, and this is um, because it's, it's uh, presented in multiple gospels. One, one gospel is called the Sermon on the Plain and another gospel is called the Sermon on the Mount. And some people will say, well, there's a discrepancy in the scriptures. No, he probably taught it in the plain. Probably taught it on the mount, you know, in a box with a fox, here and there, everywhere. So he probably taught these things in a very systematic way as he taught. Now, if you have ever heard an evangelist speak, and then you've gone to another church to hear the same evangelist speak, you've probably heard the same message twice. Evangels have the luxury of not having to prepare a new message every week. Sounds kind of nice sometimes. But this is what Jesus was doing. It was his kingdom manifesto. So let's talk about today. The, the, the majority of our conversation today is going to be on the preamble to this message. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start right at the beginning because this is the very beginning of his sermon. And it says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when you, well, excuse me, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, let's just stop there. That's the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. N.T. Wright, in his Matthew for Everyone Part 1 guide, makes an important observation about the nature of the Beatitudes. He says this, 
Jesus is not suggesting that these are simply timeless truths about the way the world is, about human behavior. If he was saying that, he was wrong. Mourners often go uncomforted. The meek don't typically inherit the earth. And those who long for justice frequently take the longing for justice to the grave. This is an upside-down world, or perhaps a right-way-up world. And Jesus is saying that with his work, it is starting to come true. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom within the existing world. And he's not saying that this is something that happens. He's saying this is something that should happen and will happen in my kingdom. This is how we are supposed to live. Okay? Wright goes on to say, this is an announcement, not a philosophical analysis of the world. It is something uh, it is about something that is starting to happen, not about a general truth of life. It is gospel. Good news, not good advice. This is how we are wired to work at our optimal level. Yet we live in a world that has turned the right side up to upside down. And we see it as normal. In a recent interview with Dr. Jordan Peterson, whether you like him or not, this is an interesting concept. He talks about how the world, in the world systems, there is a notion that the fundamental human motivation is the willingness and ability to use compulsion or power. Power, power, it's all about power. And that's what he says. Peterson goes on to explain that this is not ultimately fulfilling for people. Think about this. He says this. You don't have friends because they're compelled to be your friends. You don't have friends because they're compelled to be your friends. You might have a bully henchman that way, but you don't have a friend. You can't compel or use power to make a friend. Power, he goes on to say, power is an extraordinarily unstable basis to establish any relationship such as marriage. It's also a preposterous, this is him talking, he's using words I don't, it's also a preposterous proposition because the, uh, the expression of power within an intimate relationship does not produce intimacy or a relationship. The expression of power within a relationship does not produce intimacy or relationship. The best it can produce is something like a combination of tyranny and slavery, and that does not characterize God's institution of marriage. He says this, even chimpanzees who have a patriarchal social structure, if they are based in power, their communities are unstable, and the alpha chimp who use power are very likely to meet an extraordinarily brutal and premature end. Even among chimps, it's the ability to make peace and to engage 
and reciprocal interactions that constitutes the basis of a stable polity. And it's obviously the case that that's the proper basis for social reaction, especially among a free people. I'm really glad that that quote is over because, wow, he uses big words. Let me, let me use scripture to say the same things, and I'm telling you Jesus says it better. Ready? Matthew 20 says this. Jesus called to them, his disciples, over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That's how the kingdom is supposed to work. Now, we're going to get into it a little bit later because you say, Pastor, how do we function in a kingdom like this when the reality of our world is so opposite? Wouldn't that put us behind in the world? Well, we'll find out. Many Jewish people who were looking for the coming Messiah believed that the kingdom would be ushered in only by a great war and force of arms, but Jesus promises that kingdom for the poor in spirit, the humble, and the meek, the peacemakers. So I want to just dissect some of these sections of this preamble, okay? This, what we call the Beatitudes. And why do we call it the Beatitudes? Well, the Greek word for um, blessed is, sounds like B. <laughs> so it's the Beatitudes. It's just something that, it's very churchy, and if you're not part of the church for a long time, you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. There's no Beatitudes in there. It's the blessed is, okay? So that's where it comes from. But let's talk about the poor in spirit. What does that even mean? Poor in spirit. Poverty in Jesus' time, as well as today, was often associated with unrighteousness. You were poor because you did something wrong. You were sick because God was judging you for something that you did. Jesus says that those who are poor in spirit are rich in the kingdom. To be poor in spirit is to be faithfully dependent on God. That's what it means. To be poor in spirit means to be faithfully dependent on God. What does that mean? It means I'm not faithfully dependent on this. Okay? I am faithfully dependent on God. It's the opposite of self-reliant. It's the opposite of independently self-actualization, where everything that I am is made up of this world. It's no, 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 no. My thoughts, my actions, my words are not mine. I'm poor in spirit. I give that over to the control of God. Okay, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. The truth is brought out that the follower of Jesus does not aggressively insist on his own rights, but displays genuine humility. He gives the right over to God. God, you tell me how I ought to live. Meekness is not to be confused with weakness. 
and it so often is confused with weakness. But I want to I really want to flip that on its head. Let me, let me explain this to you. Who was the most meek person to ever walk the earth? Jesus. Would you characterize him as weak? But he was the most meek person in history. Let me me explain to you what meekness really looks like. Meekness is not to be confused with weakness. The meek are not simply submissive because they lack the resources to be anything but. True meekness may be a quality of the strong. Those who could assert themselves, those who could assert themselves, but choose not to do so. The strong who qualify for the blessings are the strong who decline to domineer. Think about that for a second. What what, what does the scripture say about Jesus? He was humble and obedient to the point of death. Even though he could have called legions of angels to destroy anybody who would have tried to put him on that cross. He humbled himself under the will of God, and he said, even though I'm strong, I am going to be submissive to God. Okay, that's poor in spirit. That's meek. So here's the thing. In our culture today, it's vastly important for us to understand that just because we, just because we have power or just because we have authority, or just because we have wealth, or just because we have uh, a position that's above people, it doesn't give us the right to domineer. In fact, those who have power, who are humble, are what God prizes in his kingdom. It's not, being meek is not about not having stuff. Being meek is about having everything and giving it up for God's kingdom. Self-assertion is never a Christian value. Rather, it is a Christian to be busy in lowly service and to refuse to engage in the conduct that merely advances one's personal aims. It's not about you. You are here to be a blessing. So that's the pre, those are the first three, kind of deals with our spirits, who we are, kind of uh, how God wants us to posture ourselves towards the, the, uh, the world. And then in the, in, the, in the second six, it kind of talks more about action. So the next section, starving for righteousness. Starving for righteousness. This doesn't mean that we are overly pious prudes. That don't, don't, don't equate righteousness with legalism. Okay, there's, there's a temptation to do that. Well, I'm going to be very righteous. Therefore, everybody else better watch out. Okay, that's not what it means. It does mean we are people who are actively pursuing God's truth. And when we discover the truth, and it doesn't align with how we are living our lives, We change our lives to match God's truth. That's when we hunger and thirst after righteousness. It says, I want the truth of God in my life. I want God's truth. Wait, hold on. I just discovered a nugget 
of God's truth in his word. And Whoa, my life doesn't mirror that. And it says, okay, because I hunger and thirst, because I, because I am starving for righteousness, I'm going to put away what I originally thought, and I'm going to embrace God's truth in my life. That's what hungering and thirsting after righteousness look, looks like. It's not about looking for flaws in others as much as looking for ways we can better align ourselves with God's truth. It's looking for the flaws in us. So often we like to use this as a bludgeoning tool for others when it really should be a scalpel for us. What does the word say? The word is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut through bone and marrow, basically get get to the heart of the issue. In us, what did Jesus say? Just stop trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you got a plank hanging out of your eye. You're like, hey, let me get that speck. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we, we think of. And that's what legalism is. That's what self-righteousness does. It looks at other people and says, you're wrong. And by saying, you're not righteous, we have just affirmed that plank in our eye. So what does the Bible say? It says, get the plank out of your own eye, and then maybe you could be see well enough to help your brother with a speck in their own. Got to be careful. We need a hunger and thirst after righteousness for us, first and foremost. This goes along nicely with the pure heart being those who see God. The pure in heart, it says, are those who see God. If we allow the Holy Spirit to purify our hearts, we will see God by seeing those around us as image bearers of God. You say, how can I? You say the pure in heart will see God. Well, I've never seen, I've never seen God. Moses didn't even see God. Moses saw a bush that was on fire. Pretty cool. I mean, he didn't actually see God. In fact, he said, God, I want to see you. And he goes, yeah, that's not going to happen because if you saw me, you'd die. But I'll show you my back. I don't know how that worked, but Moses got to see God's back. I, I don't know. It's just a, it's a weird, God like picks Moses up, puts him in a cleft of a rock and like hides his eyes and goes, okay, now, okay, no, enough. You got to see my back. I, basically what he's saying is this. If you have any doubt that I am real, I'm going to show you that I'm real, but you can't see me. Like, you can't see me. You would die. So you say, how the pure in heart will see God. How can the pure in heart see God? I think it's this way. I think when we're pure in heart, we can see past the junk in people's lives. And we can see the image of God in them. We can see past their flaws. We can see past their, their, their garbage. We can see past all the stuff that has caked itself on, the patina of sin that is on their life. And we can see right past that, and we can see people as God sees them, with, as image bearers of the Most High God. When we're not pure in heart, all we see is their junk. When we're pure in heart, we can see God in the people around us. 
That's how I think we see God in many ways. But that can only happen when the Holy Spirit purifies our heart. A pure heart frees us up to live in the world, yet not be of the world. It frees us to love people instead of seeing people as a thing to be used or avoided. It allows us to see people as God sees them, as valuable, as image bearers, rather than something to be used or avoided. Next part, merciful peacemakers. Merciful peacemakers. I want to just say this right now. Prayer is such a huge part of this, of being a merciful peacemaker. It is hard to hate someone you're praying for. Now, here's something. If you have, I won't make you raise your hand. But if I were to ask you to raise your hand and say, how many people here hate somebody? Everybody like, no, I don't hate anybody. Liar. What you do shows your hate, not what you think yourself. So I'm so I would never hate somebody. Yeah, right. What is the what are the thoughts of your heart? I'm just saying, when we get into this Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna hear things like if you have hate in your heart or if you don't love somebody in your heart, it's like you murdered them. We're going to get there. So what I'm saying is this. Yes, we would say, no, we don't hate anybody, but we do. We do. So I'm saying this. What is the antidote for that? If you have hate in your heart for a person, start praying for them. Start praying for them. I was reading a book by a... uh, psychologist, Christian psychologist, who deals with deep, deep um, pains of people's past, abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. And his statement was this to his people. He said, "Until until I can get that person to switch the script in their mind and be able to pray for the one who hurt them, healing is hard coming. But once I can get that person to realize that they don't have to allow that person to hurt them anymore by freeing them through forgiveness and start praying for that person, then boom, the gate, the, the walls start to come down. He said it's usually followed by a lot of crying <laughs> because that it's hard to hold hatred in your heart for someone you're praying for. I think Lisa said that um, in, in our family series. When you talk about your spouse, I don't know you to hate your spouse, hopefully. <laughs> but even when it comes to petty arguments, it's really hard to argue and fight with someone that you are praying for, or even worse, praying with. Try to pray with your spouse when you're fighting. Try to fight when you're praying with your spouse. Give it that way. Okay. We are called to show mercy because we have no leg to stand on when it comes to judgment. We're called to show mercy because we have no leg to stand on when it comes to judgment. We show mercy because we, as citizens of God's kingdom, have received mercy. 
Matthew 6, 12, part of, the, uh, part of the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our trespasses, as we also have forgiven those who trespass against us. There are some really scary passages of Scripture that seem to indicate, and there's a lot of debate over them, but seem to indicate that if we cannot forgive people, then God does not forgive us. Ouch. That's tough. And I don't know how, sometimes I'd like, there's got to be more to this scripture because that reads too simply. <laughs> but it's there. It's in there. We can debate it. We can talk about it. But what, he's, what is he trying to say? At the least, he's trying to say forgiveness is absolutely essential for the Christian life. We have to be able to forgive. If we recognize the amazing mercy that we have been shown, then we would gladly extend mercy to others. We should, as people, be marked by peace, not conflict. Talked a little little bit about that last week. Knowing the truth doesn't give us the right to judge people. We can judge for ourselves, but we shouldn't take that out on people. We should be marked by peace, not conflict. Romans 12, 7 through 18 says this, do not Repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, listen to this. It's a great word. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. Now, you can't control people. But as far as it depends on you, as we... See, in the closing verses of the Beatitudes, conflict is not always avoidable. And we will be drawn into it. But that must not be on our own instigation. But by the aggression of the enemy who desires to draw us into compromise. Last section here. Persecuted for righteousness. We are only blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not when we are persecuted for being a jerk. (laughs) I want to say that again because it's really, really important. We're only blessed for being persecuted for righteousness' sake. We are not blessed for being persecuted for being a jerk. If you're a jerk, even a Christian jerk, if you're a jerk and you get persecuted, you, you deserve it. So many Christians love to stir up conflict, and then they get persecuted. They get, they, they get pushed back on it, like, oh, I'm so righteous. That must mean God loves me more. So great. It's so awesome to be persecuted for God. No, you got persecuted because you're a jerk. But I'm telling you, if you hold a stand of righteousness, persecution is going to come. And in that moment, you can say, okay. I, I, you know, and I'm telling you, if you have the right heart, you're not going to be like all proud of it either. You're going to just take it quietly. When we are persecuted or hated or attacked or canceled for being like Christ, then we should rejoice that we are counted worthy. If Christ's likeness is the ultimate goal of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we should, be, we should not be surprised when we experience persecution from family, from friends, 
from coworkers and society at large. We should not be surprised. If being Christ-like is the ultimate goal, then why are we surprised when the world hates us? When friends don't understand us? When family avoids us? When society cancels us? John 15. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Because we're living in God's kingdom. It's a different society. It's a different culture. It's a different kingdom. Remember, the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Just, just make, make sure it's because you're standing on God's truth and not because you're being a jerk. Like, seriously. But don't be surprised when it comes. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name. Because they don't know the one who sent me. Verse 23. The one who hates me also hates my father. If they hated him, and we are seeking to be like him, they will hate us. Yet, they're not really hating us. They're hating Jesus and God the Father who sent him. So give yourself a break. They're not really hating you. Jesus is like, let yourself off the hook. They're not really hating you. They're just hating me, whom you try to be like. They don't hate you as a person. They hate you as what you represent, and that's Christ. So, verse 12 of the Beatitudes, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the progress report on your discipleship journey. This is the progress report. Let me ask you this question. How often do you avoid persecution? How often do you compromise truth to avoid persecution? I'm telling you, if you're not being persecuted in some way, shape, or form, then maybe you're not living the truth the way you ought to. Conflict and persecution is not something that we look for. I get it. We're not supposed to try to drum it up either. That's what we talked about. But if you're not getting it at all, if there's no pushback against your life by the world, then what does the Bible say? It said if you were of the world, they would love you as their own. Are you being loved by the world, or are you receiving a little bit or a lot of bit of pushback? That is your progress report for your discipleship journey. And what, how do we know that? Because it says if you are getting persecuted, guess what? You're in good company. So they persecuted the prophets before you. That's good company. If you want to be like Christ, if you want to be like the people who follow Christ, there should be something visibly and in your attitude, that's different than the world. And it should cause people to be 
somewhat uncomfortable about the state of their life, there should be some persecution. And if you're getting some, you get a gold star. Congratulations. You are meeting the progress report of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, to be a follower of Jesus. Now, what, what do I want you to take away from this sermon today is this. There's a bunch of stuff that we're going to talk about over the summer that is going to be very counter what the world, it's, 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 it's completely opposite of the world, okay? But I want you to take it as this. I want you to say, okay, what, kind of, what nuggets of truth, what nuggets of truth can I glean from all the stuff that pastor said today? And just start tacking, you know, applying them to your life. How does it, what would it look like if I wasn't so careful to hide my Christianity? What, if, what if, would it look like if I spoke truth even though I could get persecuted? What would it look like if I started to scrub my own life instead of looking at everybody else? What would it look like if I came up against truth in God's word that was against, which conflicted with the way I'm living, and I started to put that away and started applying that truth? Just take steps towards a new level of discipleship, a new level of what it looks like to follow Jesus. If you take this sermon and you, and you take it as a whole and you plop it onto your life right now, you will be overwhelmed. And I don't want that for you. I, I really don't. I want to allow, I want to talk about this, this sermon of Jesus and let the Holy Spirit. Start do little pinpricks into your life and say, okay, this one, this is one we can work on. How about this one? Or, you know, or you know, you need this one before you can ever get to this one. Just let the Holy Spirit guide and direct you. I don't want you to get overwhelmed. I want you to rest in God's truth and let the Holy Spirit teach. Teach. Can we do that together? So as we close in prayer, would you just bow your head and just just Think over the sermon this morning, just, just for a second. Think about all the different parts we talked about. And just let the Holy Spirit rest on one thought. A place in your life that maybe you could take a step forward. A place in your life where you could make a change and align yourself better with the truth of God's word. Just take a moment. God, by your Holy Spirit, I ask that in the places that you're showing people where they can follow closer to you, that you wouldn't just reveal to them that thing, but you'd also empower them to accomplish the purpose that you've given them in their lives. Just that one thing that you would give them victory over that thing. Lord, when they put that into practice, that they would see the fruit of it. And Lord, when they fail, because we all fail, when they fail, Lord, I pray that you would help them to get back on track. Lord, that you would give them spiritual eyes to see and the power of your spirit to be victorious. Lord, you said that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, help us to take this series 
as just better understanding what that yoke is so that we can apply it to our lives. Thank you for this sermon of sermons. We give you praise and glory today as we go into the world and apply your truth.